book of Acts chapter number two is where we're going to be at. And we started a series in Acts back a few weeks ago, and we are going through and watching the birth and the growth of the first church and seeing how it came about. And we've looked at this so far, and I have emphasized that Acts is a transitional book. This is going from uh, the birth and the growing pains and all of these things of the early church, seeing them navigating from the time that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives up into heaven to the time that the church had spread and was all over throughout Europe and throughout Asia and was a, uh, a force to be reckoned with. We see that they turned the world upside down, but at the very beginning with what we're seeing, uh, they're not doing very much turning. And we're seeing that the disciples at the very beginning, whenever Jesus first left, uh, they were um, they were as sheep without a shepherd. They were as a ship without a sail. They didn't know what was going on, what to do, and they were frightened. They were uh, confused. They were almost like a, a child lost in uh, Tesco. Okay, they didn't know what they were doing, where to go, and so that's where we find them at the beginning of the book of Acts and. Throughout the book of Acts, there is a transition, a transformation that happens, and God brings about changes. And I said in the beginning of this that Acts is often called Acts of the Apostles, but I think it would be uh, better named Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, because it is a work that the Holy Spirit does through his apostles, through his uh, believers, and man can't take credit for it. We find that it was the Holy Spirit and what he was doing through these men, that if you just took the men that we find in the Gospels, the ones that the Lord called out from being fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and that kind of thing, if you took them and turned them loose throughout Europe and Asia, they would not have a clue what to do. They wouldn't be able to accomplish anything. But we see that the opposite is true, and where we're at today is the explanation, is the answer why all of that happened. And so just to review a, a slight bit here, last week what we looked at was the disciples' replacement of Judas. As they were gathered in the upper room and were waiting, Jesus says, wait on me, wait on the promise that I have given you, wait on the Holy Spirit. And he says, you shall receive power. You shall be endued with power from on high. And so he says to wait. And while they're waiting, the empty chair of Judas is staring them in the face and they can't get beyond it. Uh, they already missed Jesus being there. But now with Judas going as well, there is a gaping, a glaring hole. There is an elephant in the room, if you will. And so Peter stands up, says, I can't take it anymore. We got to do something about this empty position. And we debated a little bit last week on whether or not the disciples were right to replace Judas. And the conclusion that we came to is we're not going to know the side of heaven. There are people that contend on both sides. And personally, my opinion, and you know what opinions are good for, personally, my opinion is uh, they didn't wait. He said wait, and deciding on something as important as replacing uh, one of the 12 doesn't really constitute waiting in my mind. But that's my opinion. There's a lot of people that would argue with that. And either way, we don't know. We'll find out one of these days when we get to heaven and figure out who's sitting on that 12th seat, right? But on this side of heaven, we don't know. But either way about it, what we do see from this, we look at the reasons why Judas turned away from the Lord, why he abandoned his post, if you will. Uh, we saw 
what he missed out on, what he lost because of him turning away. Um, it's very possible that his could have been the position. He could have been Apostle Paul if he wouldn't have turned away. It's possible. Uh, we don't know what it is that he gave up, but we know that he gave up a lot. And then we also looked at the process of them replacing uh, Judas and how God can work through our weaknesses and work in spite of us. And whether they were right or wrong, God didn't hold it against them. And he still was able to use it. Uh, even with Matthias and Justice, the two that were put forward as possible replacements, uh, both of them, we don't really find anything other than their names mentioned at this one place. We don't find it anywhere else in Scripture. But yet, they were still uh, worthy to fulfill that position by the estimation of the apostles. They still were men who had been faithful, men who had been uh, proven themselves, and men that were able to go forth from that place and to leave an impact on this earth. And so whether you have a title or you don't have a title, whether you're chosen or you're not, uh, it doesn't matter. The Lord can still work through all of us. And so we saw all those things last week. And this week, what we're going to be doing, we're going to be looking in Acts chapter number two. And this is the day of Pentecost. This is whenever the Holy Spirit comes down. And this is a, a, a very interesting passage of scripture. Really, I think it is a pivotal point. This is what takes the disciples from being those uh, uh, shaking, scared little boys in the upper room to being fierce preachers on the day of Pentecost and going out and confronting uh, those who had killed Jesus rather than uh, cowering back and denying Christ. Now they're going to boldly proclaim. And it all is because of this pivotal moment, and it's because of what God does in them. And so let's go ahead and read in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read the first portion of Scripture here down to, um, uh, I don't know, it depends on if you fall asleep. Um, <laughs> Acts chapter number 2. And it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying uh, one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. 
For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it came to pass, and it shall come to pass, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out... Uh, in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so what we have that happens here. We start out this passage, and they are all together in the upper room. In the previous chapter, we find out they were numbered about 120 of them up there. So not just the disciples, but there were others. And it says that they were all in one place and one accord. And in other passages, we find that they were going about the synagogue. They were uh, fellowshipping together and these kind of things. But they kept coming back to this one place, this upper room, and Jesus told them to wait. You're going to receive power. All these things are going to happen to you, but wait. And with them being here in one place, in one accord, uh, I find that to be a, a wonderful thing because I think we would benefit greatly today as Christians if we could be in one accord right? Mm -hmm. If we could all get on the same page, if we could all get together rather than the divisiveness, rather than the bickering and the backbiting over stupid and silly things. Mm -hmm. But they were together in one accord. But what was it that made them come together and be in one accord at that time? I want to make you think for a minute. The death of Jesus? Jesus? Okay, that played in it. What? Their fear. fear. Okay. <clears throat> that comes as the death of Jesus. That was like the starting point, right? Yeah. And so as we look at that, they are all afraid. They don't know what to do. They don't know how long they're going to wait. There are questions. There are anxieties. There are troubles. And what it all comes down to is they're basically in over their heads. Because could you imagine that the last thing that Jesus says to them, you are going to be witnesses of me in Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the earth. I have chosen you. I am sending you out. You are going to be my ambassadors. You're going to be my mouthpiece. You are going to be the ones representing me. And I am not going to physically, personally be with you anymore. Right? If we look at the time that Jesus was with them, he basically held them by the hand. He took them everywhere. He led them. He put, And time after time, he had to reprove them because of the dumb things they would do and say. And so they went where he told them to go. He, they slept where he told them to sleep. They ate what he told them to eat, right? And now he's gone. And so now they're saying, what do we do from here? And there's nothing that will bring a group of people together more than being helpless, right? And so it is binding them together, realizing their helplessness. And so they are waiting. They are leaning on each other. They are uh, holding fast to each other because they realize they can't do it themselves. 
And I said it would be great if we could be in one accord if uh, Christians today could get in the same boat together, right? But I believe we've gotten so far past the place of needing God, of depending on God, of realizing that without him we can do nothing. We've gotten away from this helplessness thinking that somehow we can do it on our own, thinking that somehow we are able of our own ability, of our own strength to go out and make something happen for God. And so there is so much emphasis even from preaching and from the pulpit of doing great things for God as if it's up to us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and go out and do something of our own ability, of our own uh, making, as if we ourselves have the power to do anything. And that cultivates pride within us rather than dependence. It makes us uh, self-confident rather than God-confident. And so that makes us competitive as well, because if it's up to me to do a great work, my work needs to be greater than yours, and your work needs to be greater than mine. And we begin to have fightings and contentions amongst ourselves because we are no longer waiting on the Spirit of God. We are no longer realizing how weak and how helpless we are and dependent on Him. Instead, we think we've got it under control. And we see that cropping out in Peter all the way through uh, the Gospels, where Peter repeatedly uh, thinks that he has it under control, that he is able to do things. He's even rebuking Jesus himself whenever Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says, not so. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Mm -hmm. They are trying to argue over who's going to be first place in heaven. And it's easy to do that whenever Jesus is fighting all the battles for them already, whenever uh, they have him right there front and center, whenever they're not actually having to be in the battle, because, <clears throat> excuse me, because Jesus has shielded them so much from the battles, right? You look at children, they get very comfortable. They get very uh, self-confident. They think they can do anything. Children believe they're invincible, right? Why do children believe they're invincible? Because their parents have provided and protected and done everything for them. And so they thought they'd done it themselves, right? And so you take the parent out of the way, all of a sudden that, that confidence starts lowering down a little bit, right? Yeah. And so Jesus is now out of the picture, and they can't just look to him and say, okay, Lord, save me, as Peter's sinking, right? And so now they're saying, uh, we need something more than what we have. We need something greater than just us. We can't do this ourselves. And so they came to this place that they realized they needed God. They realized they needed his Holy Spirit, and they were thirsting, they were hungering, they were longing for it because they knew that if the Spirit didn't come, they were going to die in that upper room and it was going to become their final resting place. They weren't going to leave that place until the Holy Spirit came because everyone outside of there wanted to kill them, right? Yeah. But whenever the Spirit came, everything changed, right? It says, suddenly there was a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Notice that it emphasizes the sound. There wasn't the feeling of a breeze. There wasn't a literal wind, but it says there was a sound of a wind that came through. So that it filled the house. It wasn't everywhere in the city. It was right where they were at, and it was showing them that what they were waiting for had finally came. And the Lord is giving them these outward showings, these manifestations of sound and of sight because the Spirit actually comes in a way that is imperceivable. 
whenever we get saved, we are born again. We are brought into the body of Christ by the Spirit. We are sealed with the Spirit, right? We receive the Spirit as the earnest of our salvation. We also know that we are indwelt. He comes in and we become the, the temple of God, right? Because the Spirit dwells within us. All of these things happen at the moment of salvation, but if you are looking for a feeling or if you're looking for some kind of manifestation, it's not going to happen, right? Sometimes there are feelings and emotions associated with salvation, but I'm not talking about that with the Holy Spirit here. And so with these disciples, the Lord was doing something new, and to announce its arrival, the Lord gave these outward signs, these manifestations to the disciples, to know that what the Lord said to wait on had finally arrived, okay? And so, so that we don't get caught up in these outward manifestations, remember I said this is a transitional book. Things are changing, new things are happening, and human beings are not good with change, right? Yeah. And so God is bringing things slowly. He's bringing it to them in such a way that they are going to receive it. They're going to perceive it. And whenever this happens, they realize that the status quo has changed, right? And so it says that there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. Now, it wasn't fire upon them. It says it was like fire. Cloven means that it was split, okay? So there was a visual. There was an audible that uh, let them know that the Holy Spirit had come. And it tells us that the Holy Spirit sat on each of them. Now, whenever we look at the Holy Spirit and the coming on the day of Pentecost, we think of the Holy Spirit coming and setting upon the 11 or 12 of them, right? But the Bible makes it clear that there was 120 of them in the upper room, men and women, right? Of all different stages in their faith, their spiritual development, all of them still considered babes in Christ. This is the very beginning, right? And they all received of the Holy Spirit equally. There wasn't anyone who got preference. Peter didn't get more than Thomas did, right? Thomas didn't get more than Mary did, but they received of the Holy Spirit, each and every one of them equally. God is not a respecter of persons, neither is the Spirit. And it says in verse 4, they were filled with this, the Holy Ghost. Good morning. They were filled with the Holy Ghost, and it says they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so the... Uh, the sound of the wind, the cloven tongues as of fire were audible, visible signs to the disciples that something was going on, right? Mm -hmm. But now, as they began to speak in other tongues, it was a sign to the Jews that were in Jerusalem that something was going on, okay? And so after this happens, we're going to get back to this in a minute because this is a something that people get a hold of. They they like the sensational, they like the miraculous, and they ignore the important, okay? And so whenever we look at this here, as they begin to speak in different languages, different tongues, and by the way, every time in Scripture that it talks about tongues, they are actual languages, right? And so as we see here, they began to speak as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. 
The ability was all within the Holy Spirit. It wasn't something that they had to manufacture, something they had to work up, something they had to learn how to do, something they had to practice. It was something that the Holy Spirit gave to them as he willed. Okay? And it says that every man heard in his own language, verse number six. And notice how many times it says in their own language down throughout this passage. We're in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. And so in verse number six, every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were amazed because these men were Galileans. In verse number eight, it says, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. And so that makes it a little bit more specific. It says these are Galileans. They are not learned men. They are fishermen mostly. And they are able to speak and not just speak uh, crudely, but they are able to speak in a perfect accent and dialect in each of these regions, each of these lands, just as if they had been born there. That's amazing, isn't it? And we find what is it that they are speaking? Verse 11, it says, we hear them speak in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. And so they weren't speaking gibberish or nonsense. They were speaking actual tongues. And what they were doing was proclaiming the wonderful works of God. And so if the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they are proclaiming the wonderful works of God, what does that make them? Messengers. Messengers, good. What did Jesus say they would become? You shall be witnesses, right? He says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit and you're going to be witnesses. And so his Holy Spirit came and guess what? First thing they started doing, we emphasize these outward manifestations, but their message was the most important part. And they began speaking the wonderful works of God. And so as all of these people were looking on and trying to figure out what in the world is going on, these Galilean fishermen are speaking in the language of what I grew up in, the place where I was born, and they are telling me about God. They're telling me about this Jesus Christ that I've been hearing of. There is something supernatural that's going on here, and I want to know more about it, right? And so it has gotten their attention, some, it says in verse 13, were mocking and said that they're drunk, right? These men are full of new wine. And so Peter stands up, and I've said this often, I don't think Peter stood up intending to preach. I don't think Peter had a sermon ready. I don't think he said, okay, I'm going to stand up here and straighten them all out. Watch this. Peter's like, this is getting out of hand. I've got to say something because Peter always has to say something. But when he opened his mouth, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, put something worth speaking into his mouth for one of the first times. Right? And so in verse 14, he stood up with the eleven, and he lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken unto my words. And so he is speaking expressly to the Jews right now. He says, Ye men of Jerusalem, uh, you that dwell in Jerusalem, or you men of Judea, you that dwell in Jerusalem. He's got a specific crowd. Notice there were people from all different regions, but he's talking specifically now to the ones that were in Jerusalem because they were to first be witnesses to those at Jerusalem, right? Then into Judea 
and Samaria and all parts, right? And so it begins, just as Jesus said, at Jerusalem. And so he opens up his mouth and he begins to speak eloquently with great knowledge, wisdom, and insight, quoting Old Testament passages of prophecy and scripture, and himself being a fisherman, not a theologian. We could have expected something out of Apostle Paul because he was a Pharisee out of the Pharisees, right? He knew the scripture forward and backward and sideways, but Peter probably wouldn't have. But whenever he stood up, now empowered by the Holy Spirit, he was able to string together the prophecies that pointed to Jesus. He was able to make an airtight case that Jesus Christ truly was the Messiah, and the audience that he was speaking to was the ones who were responsible for his death. Not only that, he said, this is what you're seeing before you today is what Joel the prophet talked about, how that in the last days, that means before the Lord came back and brought his judgment upon them, that he was going to pour out his spirit. And he says, the Lord is pouring out his judgment, or excuse me, he's pouring out his spirit. So that means that he is going to pour out his judgment. And so he says, you're seeing it fulfilled before your eyes. And what is the response? They come under conviction, right? You come down to the end of it to uh, verse number 36. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's a big difference in Peter from whenever he was warming himself by the fire. Big difference in Peter from whenever he said, I go fishing, right? He looked right at the ones, the very crowd in the very city that Jesus was crucified in 50 days prior and said, you're responsible for killing the son of God. But their response is different as well. In verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. That's Holy Spirit conviction. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So Peter's just laid out on the line here for him. You are responsible for killing the Messiah that Jesus or that God has sent unto you. Judgment is on its way. These are signs that were prophesied in the scriptures that you know of, so you know it to be true. And they said, we messed up. We are in trouble because we have killed the Messiah. And so their response is, what shall we do? Because they see the judgment coming for them, they realize that they are sinners, they can't save themselves, and they are looking for salvation. And so Peter preaches the gospel clearly, brings them under conviction, they are seeking salvation, and basically says, like the Philippian jailer will later say, what must I do to be saved? And so Peter tells them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And so they have their marching orders. You have been against Christ. You have rejected him. And so you must repent. You need a change of heart, right? You need to change your mind about this Jesus. And rather than rejecting him, you need to accept him as your Messiah. And since he had an entirely Jewish crowd that he was speaking to, he says you also need to be baptized to set yourself apart from these Jews as a testimony against them because guess what? They have rejected the Messiah. Now they need to accept him 
and separate themselves from the ones that are fit for judgment, right? And so Peter is not laying out the groundwork that baptism is necessary for salvation throughout the generations. He is showing them as Jews, you need to repent, you need to believe on him as your Savior, and you need to have this outward sign, this outward testimony, which is going to be after salvation, like baptism always is, showing them that you have separated from them, showing them that you have believed that which you once rejected. And so all of this takes place on the day of Pentecost. You follow this one down, and it says there are thousands that are saved, and they continue together in one accord, uh, breaking of bread from house to house, and there is added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so from the beginning of this chapter of them hunkered down and scared in the upper room to this breaking forth, there is a huge change that takes place whenever the Holy Spirit comes in. And I believe that's often what we are overlooking. That's often what we're lacking. It's not that we don't have the Holy Spirit because every believer has the Holy Spirit indwelling within them, but they are too busy doing things their own way, following their own pursuits, grieving the Holy Spirit, quenching the Holy Spirit, and not being filled with the Holy Spirit. And see, there's a difference from having the indwelling Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because being filled with the Holy Spirit means that he is in control. The Bible says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit takes control, it's like alcohol taking control of the drunk man. It changes his actions, his attitude, his perspective, his personality, his characteristics. Alcohol has those changes on someone. And so the Apostle Paul uh, uh, compares it there to being filled with the Spirit. And so he says, if you let the Holy Spirit have control, another good terminology that the Bible uses, yield to the Spirit. Let him have his way. Let him be in full control of you. Let him be the one who's deciding. Let him be the one who is calling the shots. And so that's what was going on in this day. The Holy Spirit came and he took the reins. He took control. He was in charge. And Peter stood up and the Holy Spirit came out. Okay? It was no longer Peter coming out. It was the Holy Spirit was working in him and was tying all these things together. The Bible tells us that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And so the Spirit wrenched down into uh, Peter's soul, down to the places where he had been uh, laying up the Word of God in his heart. And he brought that out and unsheathed that sword. He turned it loose on that crowd, and that crowd came under conviction. And many of them were saved. And so in this, we find that, the, whole, or that the, the disciples and that Christians need the Holy Spirit to be active and working in their lives, not suppressed, not grieved, not quenched. We need the Holy Spirit. So I'll put you back on the spot again. What all does the Holy Spirit do in the lives of the believer? I mentioned several of them earlier, but now see if you're paying attention. Uh, the Holy Spirit just like uh, in us, and just like the scripture is revealing to us, mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit is not just a force, mm -hmm. it's a person. It's a person, yes. It's a third person Trinity. Mm -hmm. At the time, he did not came and inspired. Mm -hmm. Because 
Acts of the Apostle is one remarkable scripture in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And no Christian should toy with it. It was a moment in the life of believers that gave birth to the church. Mm -hmm. It brought about a new era. Mm -hmm. So, like I was going to always tell you that if any of you had not spirit, mm -hmm. you are not nothing. Right. If any of us who call ourselves Christians had not the spirit, mm -hmm. we are none of Christ. Let me just tell you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, along with what you're saying there, as far as the, the question with what the Spirit does, the first thing the Spirit does is that He uh, places us into the body of Christ, right? That is the first thing. Well, I guess we could say before that, yes. He, sorry, he sorry calls us, He draws us, right? Yes, because when the Word of God is preached mm -hmm. and we hear it, it is the Spirit of God that gives the preacher the utterance. Yeah. And the Spirit of God goes out and gives the listener mm -hmm. the ability to listen, mm -hmm. get convinced, and get convicted. Yeah. Look at what happened after Peter rose up to defend the fact that they were accused of drunkenness mm -hmm. that night in the morning. Mm -hmm. So well, don't think we are drunk. Mm -hmm. If at all we are drunk, we are drunk by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And what you are seeing in this play here was written years, years back mm -hmm. by Apostle by Joel in Joel chapter 2. Yeah. That in the last days, God shall call as his spirit. Mm -hmm. Your young men shall give dreams. Mm -hmm. Your old men shall see vision. Mm -hmm. That is what you are seeing in manifest. God will not lie. His word will not lie. Mm -hmm. If it does not happen here, it will happen ten mm -hmm. o'clock. That was mm -hmm. it. No, for the vision is yet for a quarter time. Mm -hmm. Though it tarry, you wait for it. You shall not tarry. Mm -hmm. That's scripture. Mm -hmm. So the 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 first thing we need to do is that it enable you know a hearing word of God, mm -hmm. a convincing, a conviction. By the time that happens, you now begin to pick your conscience that what shall we do? Mm -hmm. A life of sin is is abandoned mm -hmm. to a life of righteousness and nobody Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. At that moment, when you become saved and you are in free to, the next thing that happens is that you begin to look for a way, a place where, where we love the feeling of the word of God, because iron sharpness iron, mm -hmm. but belong to the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Not just anywhere, mm -hmm. a place where your flesh are groomed through the word of God, mm -hmm. a place where you belong to the to a fellowship mm -hmm. where brethren will identify with you, you also will identify with them. We live a life of Christ together. Yeah. Many things happen, you know, yeah. because if you go into this, it is very, very elaborate. Mm -hmm. So the Holy Spirit will enable your conviction and you become entirely for a place where you start thinking That's what brings you to a part mm -hmm. of the body of Christ. Yeah. So First thing, whenever we, we look at this, what the Holy Spirit does, he the Bible says that no man can come to the come to him unless the Holy Spirit draws him, right? And so he draws the sinner to Christ. Whenever the, the sinner puts his faith in Christ, whenever he accepts the gospel that he is a sinner, he is 
in line for judgment and that Christ offers salvation to whosoever will, right? Whenever he places his faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit puts him in the body of Christ. We are in Christ, right? And then he also indwells that believer, right? What else does he do? It's, um, I think, until until someone saves, they're basically ignoring, you know, what God has kind of given them, this, mm-hmm. the feeling that they're going to have, you know, mm-hmm. it says that all men fear death because they know mm-hmm. intuitively that God exists. Right. Uh, I think, like, they're, they're putting that off, but then once you, uh, it's kind of like, First, understanding and accepting the worst news ever, mm-hmm. and then immediately then accepting, you know, the, the you know, like the, the life raft or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then it, the next thing I, um, I noticed myself was, um, you know, sin doesn't leave your life, but then it no longer rules your life. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of, I don't know, uh, you start getting interested in, like, you know, Psalms and Proverbs that would have been boring to you before. Mm-hmm. But now you kind of have more of an understanding. You find that there is a change. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. But what makes that new creature is whenever the Holy Spirit is there, whenever he is working in in their in your life. So whenever he's indwelling, he is uh, giving new cravings, new desires, just like we were talking about being not being drunk with wine, but being filled with the Spirit, right? But uh, with the Holy Spirit being within us, then he is uh, causing us to like what we once hated and hate what we once liked, right? People who used to irritate me before I got saved, all of a sudden they don't irritate me as much. Now, I'm not saying that that there's no such thing as annoying Christians. There are, okay? You can still find Christians that are annoying and irritating, okay? Some of them, even the Holy Spirit can't make you like. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so there are differences that take place. But the Bible does warn us that we can quench, we can hinder the Holy Spirit by uh, pushing him away, by ignoring him, by refusing him, rejecting him, telling him no, and we become hardened and callous toward him. And basically, whenever you keep refusing him, he he says, fine, then I'll leave you alone. He doesn't leave you, but he is quenched, right? And then we can go about, and the Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a season, but there will be conviction that comes about. There are going to be chastisement that comes about because we are children of God. And he says, if you be without chastisement, then are you bastards and not sons? And so we can't be successful in sin. You can enjoy it for a while, but you can't be successful at it, right? And so anyway, uh, back to the original question. What does the Holy Spirit do? He uh, draws. He places us into the body of Christ. He uh, indwells us, right? He seals us. That means that we are his, we are God's, that we belong to him, that we are a purchased possession that will not pass from his possession, that no one can steal us from God, no one can buy us away from God. We belong to him. We are sealed. It says that we are the, or that the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. The earnest is a down payment. The Lord has given us the Holy Spirit saying, here is just a piece of heaven, just a slice of what's to come to show you that I am going to carry through with what I have offered. That whenever I purchased you, I have given you a place. He told the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you may be also, right? 
And so just to let them know that he meant it and that he has every intention of doing what he said that he would do, he says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit as a down payment. Okay? And so we have all of these things that are going on that the Holy Spirit is doing in and through us. On top of that, what did Jesus tell the disciples that the Holy Spirit was going to do? Why did he tell them to wait for the Holy Spirit? He says, you will be endued with power, right? So the Holy Spirit empowers us. Empowers us for what? Speaking in tongues? Not know what to say and to be confident. Okay. It doesn't empower us to go out and do what a lot of these groups do today and claim that it's of the Holy Spirit. It empowers them to be witnesses, right? To turn the world upside down. Yeah, to turn the world upside down. He says, you shall be endued with power to carry out the commission that I've given you. I've given you a job to do, and I'm going to give you the power which you need to do it. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. And so on the day of Pentecost, whenever they were endued with power, how did it manifest themselves? Or how did it manifest itself? The Holy Spirit made them witnesses. They began to proclaim the wondrous works of God, and Peter stood up and preached the gospel, and many people got saved as a result of it. And so the Holy Spirit isn't given to us for selfish means. It isn't to fulfill our desires and our wants. He isn't some kind of a genie in a lamp that we can rub and try to get him to do whatever we want. It's not that he's going to give us power to fulfill our dreams and our ambitions and our wishes. He is giving us the power to do what Christ has left us to do, right? Another thing that it says is that he will be a comforter, right? He's going to be a comforter. And that's another name for the Holy Spirit. Because guess what? These troubled disciples needed some comfort. And they got it. Even whenever they were in jail, they were able to sing and to preach and to proclaim the gospel because of the comfort of the Spirit and the empowerment of the Spirit that even in their worst situations and trials, they were still able to praise God. Right? And so the Spirit was a comforter unto them. And there's a multitude of other things that the Spirit does. But here at the end of this uh, study this morning, what is it that everybody gets hung up on about this passage? The tongues. tongues, Right? The speaking in tongues. Because there is a movement today where people in churches claim to speak in tongues. But my question whenever it comes to the movement of tongues today, is it by comparison, like what we see in this passage. It's gibberish, right? And that's why I emphasize as I look through this, that they were able to speak in a language that they had not learned with great precision, with great accuracy, as if they had been born, and that was their native tongue, right? And so whenever it talks about speaking in tongues, they are always, always, always actual languages, right? The only places that you find tongues in Scripture is in Acts. There's three different places in Acts. And the other place is in 1 Corinthians. Yeah. The, the modern belief about tongues today is that somehow you elevate yourself to a level of spirituality that you earn tongues. 
is one way of looking at it. Or it is a sign or a seal, a show that you have been saved and you've received the Holy Spirit. And they go back to this and say, okay, all of them that were in the upper room spoke in tongues. So anyone who gets saved should speak in tongues. But does it ever say in this passage that everyone, all of those 3,000 that were saved and the 5,000 that were saved, does it ever say that they spoke in tongues? No. Thief on the cross, Philippian jailer, Ethiopian eunuch, multitudes of others. They were speaking tongues? Apollos. Apollos. So there's plenty of them throughout Scripture. That wasn't the norm. Remember, this is transitional. And this is something that is showing the Jews that something is going on. It's to get their attention. We find in 1 Corinthians chapter number 14, verses 21 and 22, that it was a sign for the Jews. I'll go ahead and turn over there because I can't quote it. 1 Corinthians chapter number... 14 verses or chapter 13 and 14 are dealing quite a bit with tongues in the Corinthian church. By the way, the Corinthian church was the most carnal of all of the churches that Paul wrote to. They were the ones that had the most trouble. They were the ones that struggled the most with uh, they're the ones that struggled the most with sins of the flesh and with Trouble and all these things. They needed to grow. Okay? That's what was going on with them. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse number 21, it says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto those people, and yet for all that uh, will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. And so it makes it clear here that what we see in Acts chapter number 2, whenever they were speaking in tongues, this was a sign to the Jews. It was a sign of judgment to the Jews because the prophecy that he is referring to there in 1 Corinthians was saying that the Jews are going to know that judgment is coming, that they've done messed up too much. And God's patience has worth in whenever they start hearing a multitude of tongues, of languages on the streets of Jerusalem. And so whenever they were going about their day, and yes, they were used to commerce and people trafficking and things. But whenever this happened, they said, hold on, this is something different. And it was a sign to the Jews that they were in danger of judgment. But it also said that they were not going to listen, though God showed them this sign. And we see that by the majority of them here, they rejected even with this sign, right? And so it was a sign to the Jews of what God was doing. It was something meant specifically for them to warn them, to show them, so that they would know that they've messed up and that God was going to judge them and that he was extending to them one more opportunity to make things right, okay? And so we find that the wrong view of tongues, that it's some kind of gibberish, 
that it's to stroke our egos and make us feel spiritual, that it's to convince the crowds around us that we are something special from God. That was never the meaning of tongues. That was never the intention of it. It was never what it actually did. And so this was something that was temporary. It was something that was there for a purpose. When its purpose was fulfilled, whenever it was over, it vanished away as well. He told us there in 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, I believe, that tongues would cease when that which is perfect shall come. When, what is that which is perfect? A lot of people who still believe in speaking in tongues and whatnot say that which is perfect is whenever the Lord comes back. Except there's a problem with that. Because if you look at the language, it is referring to, uh, it is referring to that which is perfect in the neuter sense, it is an it. The Bible does not call Jesus it. There's plenty of uh, debate about pronouns now, right? Jesus isn't an it. And so if that which is perfect is an it, it is an inanimate object, when that which is perfect is come, when the word of God is complete, they no longer need a sign, they no longer need a something from God to show them that God has put his stamp of approval on this, that God is doing it because God has already told them what they needed to know. And so that which is perfect, that which is complete, is the word of God. And whenever it came, then the need for signs and wonders ceased. Okay? And so with all of this, there's plenty of people who are getting sidetracked, and we could go into this whole tongues thing a lot longer, and I'm, I don't want to do that. But a lot of people are getting sidetracked on the miraculous. They're getting hung up on these outward appearances. They're getting hung up on things that seem supernatural and incredible, and they can read this entire passage and miss out, basically not see the force for the trees here. Because what happened in Acts chapter number 2 the Holy Spirit came down, came to a bunch of weak, incapable, struggling, fearful believers and strengthened them, enabled them, empowered them, guided them, grew them, brought back to remembrance the things that Jesus had taught them, made sense of the word of God in them and enabled them to be witnesses there and to see great things accomplished. And so if you read Acts chapter 2 and all you get from it is rushing winds and cloven tongues of fire and men speaking in tongues, you have missed the boat. If you think that's what Acts chapter 2 is about, you have missed it. Because God gave some outward manifestations to show both the disciples and the Jews that he was doing something. But after he got their attention, then they got down to business, right? And so for us today, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. If you are born again, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. He can empower you. He can guide you. He can strengthen you. He can recreate you. He can make you new if you let him. If you will yield to him, if you will seek him, if you will acknowledge that you need him, 
Because for the most part, we go through our lives saying, God, I've got it under control. We poke the Holy Spirit back in a little corner recess of our hearts. And we say, you just stay put. I'll let you know if I need you. And we go about trying to do things our own way, by our own power, by our own strength. We spin our wheels. We get nothing done. Right? And we would be in a lot better place if we would get back to where the disciples were in Acts chapter number one, realizing that without him, they could do nothing. With them seeking after him, desiring him, and knowing they needed him, and that they could not do what was needed to be done unless he did it through them. If we have the attitude, if we have the mindset that we can take on this world uh, like some kind of Rambo going through and some kind of a superhero, whatever you want to say, whatever genre of movies you like there, if you think that you are the Savior, if you think you're the hero, if you're going to save the day, uh, you've done kick Jesus off the throne and you put yourself there. And I guarantee you that you're not going to be able to accomplish near as much as he can accomplish in you. Okay? That was the first sin of like the universe was saying, doing that same thing. Yes. That's a, that's a very good point. And so that's what we're still doing to this day. Satan says, I, I want to have preeminence. I want to be in control. I want to be the one in charge. And we're still saying, step aside, God, I've got this. Right? We do it in the matter of salvation. I'm going to work my way into heaven. Watch me. Look at all the good things I'm doing. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to do all these great things and God's going to be so happy with me. No. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The very best works that we do are still tainted by pride. And even if we are a very good person, does that make up for the bad that we do? I go out and murder one of your family members, but I go out after that and do all kinds of good things. Is that going to repay for it? You're going to say, oh, he's a pretty good person. Yeah, he killed mama, but he's okay. No, that's not the way that it works. Good doesn't repay for bad. But we think that we can somehow save ourselves. We think that we can pay for our own sins. After we're saved, we think that somehow we can live the Christian life by our own power, our own abilities. Whenever God says from the very beginning... You are saved because of what I have done for you. And anything that you accomplish after that, you're going to be accomplishing because you yield to me and let me do it in you and through you. You can put on a suit and tie. You can remove words from your vocabulary. You can change the way that you speak. You can put on airs. You can have your little facade and pretend that you have it all under control. But unless the Holy Spirit does the work from the inside, it is all fake. Right? You ever see these videos on YouTube and things of girls when they take their makeup off? Sorry, that might be a sore spot for some. There's some false advertising going on. But the same thing's going on with a lot of Christians as well. Because all we've done is we've put on our carnal makeup. We put on a facade, we put on a mask, we look the part, but inside we're still just as broken and as messed up as we ever were because we have never let the Holy Spirit do a work in us because we're trying to do it ourselves, right? So hopefully through this this morning, my goal has been to, to show you that we don't need miracles and outward manifestations and speaking in tongues and rolling in the floor and barking like dogs and whatever else this mess is that they do. 
we need the Holy Spirit coming in us and working in us and through us, enabling us and empowering us to do the things and to live the way that God intended for us to do. And we are never going to do that without him. So does anyone have any questions or any comments, anything to add to this this morning? I was watching a, a video sent to me on WhatsApp. Now, this young man who smokes weed. Okay. I was praying, God, take it from me. He stopped me from smoking weed. Please, God, God. And I was praying that prayer. A friend was handing to him a stick of weed to him. Just took it. Please, God, this will be the last way I will smoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was praying, God, stop. And they claim to be they claim to be filled with the spirit because yes. they speak in tongues. They use that as a proof, right? I was watching a video in Kenya. A man mm-hmm. of God who was casting out demons. I mean, I mean, he was his members left on the ground. He was matching them. Mm-hmm. Remember when he did the carpet mm-hmm. all in the name of miracle. This and this number. So this is always like that. It's, this is always supposed to unite us with Christ. That might live the life of yeah. Jesus. If you look at the passages there that you're referring to in 1 Corinthians, uh, as I said, Corinthians was the Corinth was the carnal church. That was the way that what you just described happening down in Africa, that was what was going on in Corinth. There were men that were using uh, a false sense of speaking in tongues in order to elevate themselves. Paul is implying here that what they're doing is not of God because it is self-serving. It is... Um, uh, rooted in pride that all of them 
are attempting to speak in tongues. They're doing it out of order. They're doing it in uh, confusion. The Bible says that God's not the author of confusion. And so Paul sets out um, some parameters, some criteria for them in Corinth speaking in tongues. Because at that time, that which was perfect was not yet there. They needed something to authenticate the word of God that was being revealed to them. And so he said, if there's any of that speaking in tongues, let it be at two at the most three. And there needs to be an interpreter there. If there's not an interpreter, be quiet and sit down because it doesn't matter unless there is someone there that can tell you what's being said. And then it said that it was all to be scrutinized, to be judged whether or not it was truly of God. Now, let me ask this. Anywhere that they're speaking in tongues, so-called today, are they interpreting? Is it actual languages? And are they open to scrutiny? Take one of those pastors that say, I am the man of God, and I speak in tongues, and it shows that I am filled with the Spirit. And if someone rises up and says, hold on, I don't know that what you're saying agrees with the Bible, I shall not lift up your hand against the Lord's anointed. Right? Isn't that what they say? we find that this is not <laughs> scriptural. Okay. But that's fairly big in the in like in the states with these massive churches where there's like two, three thousand, four thousand people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a bloody concert hall. Mm-hmm. You know, and like I was watching a video yesterday of a pastor, and he was like, "Let the Holy Spirit, you know, fill you up or something." And the guy started speaking gibberish. And everyone, and they, everyone they're probably full of the spirit, but it's not the holy one. And the pastor's running up around doing sprints. You know, it's, it's just like a show. Yeah, it just looks shoot yeah, crazy. It's a show. I had a, a church of our minister uh, who I know, like, you know, asked, you know, uh, can I pray for you? And yeah, he started, and then he started doing the gibberish. I was just, you know, just trying not to, like, find it funny, kind of, and just mm-hmm. be polite. But, like, I don't think that, I think it's just gibberish, like, in all cases, because you were saying that the Bible is stopped. Yeah. Well, if you look in the passage there in First Corinthians, uh, a lot of them will point to it and say that it's supposed to be some sort of a prayer language, because it says that uh, he who speaks in an unknown tongue, unknown being one that is not recognized by the people that are hearing it, not meaning that it's some kind of special tongue, some kind of special language, but he who prays in an unknown tongue and no one understands it, that he speaks to himself and to God, right? And they say, oh, it's a prayer language. What Paul is saying is it does no one any good besides you and God whenever you're doing that. No one understands what's going on. It's not saying that you're praying to God. It's saying that only God knows what you're saying. Okay? That would be the way that we'd put it now. Only God knows what you said, so why are you bringing that rubbish into the church house? Yeah, you should definitely always pray and teach in your own language to respond to. Well, we've got many different tongues here, and if Peter would stand up and say one of his... 10 different languages that he can speak. And none of us in here could recognize, none of us knew what it was. Then would it do any of us any good? Wouldn't do me any good. I have a question. And and we speak about tongues, and it's it's like mostly in Africa, charismatic, that's where they go with. There's there's a lot of in America, too. In America as well. But the question comes, does that... uh, disqualify them being Christians because they're speaking in tongues? No, it doesn't, because as we look at 1 Corinthians, uh, the church at Corinth, they were speaking in tongues, they were carnal, they were babes in Christ, they had a lot of problems, 
But Paul never discounts their salvation. No. So you can be saved and misled. Because it's even been it's been proven there was a a bit of an experiment that was done. They took uh, a group of people, it was like five or ten, uh, that believed in tongues and spoke in tongues. And they took another five or ten that didn't believe it at all, weren't even Christians, put them through the same situations, and the way that they spoke in tongues was identical one to the other. It's something that can be learned the way that they're doing it in a lot of the modern movements, this gibberish stuff, okay? But what we see in the Bible, it was actual languages in native dialects, okay, to people who understood it to validate the message that was being spoken and to be a sign to the Jews that they were hearing this and that God was setting them aside until the day of judgment and that he was turning to the Gentiles, all these other tongues and languages, right? And so that's what was going on in these passages. And so whenever people try to put tongues on the top shelf of spirituality, that's what they were doing in Corinth, and Paul was uh, chastising them for it. He was coming through and reproving them for it because they said, oh, let's everybody speak in tongues. Look how special it makes us feel. No, none of the gifts of God is to make you feel special. Praise the Lord. And to better understand this matter of tongues, uh, mm-hmm. because take time at home to read out of the apostle. Mm-hmm. Then read First Corinthians chapter 13 and chapter 14. Mm-hmm. Apostle Paul emphasized the fact that talk speaking is not the issue. Mm-hmm. If you speak in tongues and you have no love, mm-hmm. right? just identify, making noise, mm-hmm. just noise, gibberish. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is love. Mm-hmm. And in the composite part of Acts 13, it says love, faith, and love. Hope, love, and faith mm-hmm. are the greatest, mm-hmm. but love is greater than hope and faith. Mm-hmm. That's the key thing. Yeah. Oh, even I Jesus said that the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So, yeah, he puts it at the very top. Speaking about, you know, in Africa, it's kind of goes abusing this tongue, the gift of tongue. Mm-hmm. I was in one of the church many years ago when I was still in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. A colleague of mine. Invited me for counseling for getting a child after mm-hmm. many years of marriage. Mm-hmm. And when there, a guest yeah. was invited to talk. And the man mattered the book, he started speaking in talks, in talk, and God opened my eyes. The man of God, from his head down to his chest, mm-hmm. is of animal. Mm-hmm. Head down is human being. Jesus. I saw it. This, this, this is not, this is a fake man. Mm-hmm. Fake man. Mm-hmm. It was blasting in tongues. Yeah. These are the things. Yeah, so you can quickly evaluate and say, because the Bible tells us that we are to scrutinize it, we are to evaluate, yes. we are to try the spirits to see if they be of God. And whenever you look and that they are of pride, that their purpose is not the gospel, it's not to glorify God, but to glorify man, that they are completely off base. They are not of God. And so we can automatically discount that and say, okay. This guy over here is living in sin, promoting himself, seeking to be worshipped, and God is on the back burner. Whatever he's doing, that's not of God. 
Doesn't matter if he can do backflips and somersaults. Doesn't matter if he can speak in tongues. Doesn't matter if he can heal the sick and uh, raise the dead. If he is not of God, if he is doing it for himself and for his glory, then whatever it is that's empowering him is not God. Right? Should you be weary of churches and pastors and preachers and stuff that are able to uh, kind of do practices like that? You know, having people up that are cripples and now they're walking. And I know some of it's staged and stuff, but should you be wary of people that do things like that? You know, like should a pastor be up in front of hundreds of people speaking in tongues? Like, are these things that we should just accept because it was done before or should we kind of be weary about it when you see a pastor heal someone out of the blue like when you're kind of like I don't know that kind of seems far-fetched well for one thing we we should always be uh, yeah cautious that's a good word we should always be cautious of anyone even the apostle Paul told the Bereans that they were more noble than those of Thessalonica, because they even measured all of Paul's words, not his miracles, not his act. They were taking and saying, okay, we want to make sure that what you're saying lines up with Scripture, okay? And that was the Apostle Paul. And so we don't just take anything, say, oh, okay, well, it says something about speaking in tongues in Scripture, so if they're speaking in tongues, it must be of God. Mm. No. If they're doing this, then it must be, no. But even going further than that, uh, those sign gifts, those ones that were, uh, meant to establish the church. The things that were going on during the transitional period and God was putting his stamp of approval on certain things that he was revealing some things, uh, those things ceased. They ended. Is Satan still able to conjure up things? Is there still sleight of hand? Is there still uh, evil spirits and seducers that wax? All of those things are still going on. And so I don't believe that when they're happening today, especially whenever you start inspecting the fruit of these movements and ministries, I don't believe that they are of God at all. So it's more than just being wary of it. It's, okay, they are off base. I'm going to stay away from that. Because it's not signs and wonders and miracles. The Bible clearly puts a premium on those who believe without seeing those who don't need some sort of a miracle, that don't need some kind of special sign, the Bible puts a premium on that and says that we are to believe that it was the Jews that required a sign, right? That's what the Bible says. The Jews required a sign. God gave them a sign for a time. Now he has set them aside and he is working through the church and the signs have ceased. Okay? We even have the be like, you know sugar pill where you think you were healed so then actually does some sort of a benefit. Oh, there's so many examples yeah. where like Benny Hinn and some of these dudes on TV where they had it staged and had actors and there's plenty of charlatans that's been brought out. Uh, but some of it could be psychosomatic. It comes up as okay, you've convinced in your head, and for a while you'll see an improvement. Uh, there's these healers that come out, and now we've got from tongues to healing. But anyway, um, we'll have to bring this to a close. We're running over time. But anyway, whenever you look at like these healers and whatnot, the guy comes up and he's got, he can't see, he's blind, and now he can see a little bit. Is that how healing went in the Bible? No. Okay. The lady that comes up and she's crippled and she's bent over, 
and she still has a limp afterward. Is that how it went in the Bible? And so, you know, they come in and they got their crutches and they throw their crutches away and they're walking and whatnot up there. And then the adrenaline wears off and they get their crutches back whenever they get in the car and go home. It's not of God. It's a mess. Okay. And so what ends up happening is Satan is turning the church into a sideshow. He's making it a mockery in front of the world. But what if you agree with what that pastor is teaching and what he's preaching? Because it's the same as that, say, on social media, like there's a, a pastor that I watch and what he teaches and preaches is it's a lot of what's going on in the world and it makes sense. But then at the same time in his church, he has this where he's randomly healing people and stuff and you're kind of like, I don't know, that kind of goes against everything. You know, it's just like what you're preaching sounds really good mm-hmm. and it makes sense and there's, there's volume to it. But then all of a sudden he's got a bunch of people, like you said, running around. And he's like, you know, cast that demon out, cast that demon out. And you're like, what? It's not Lord of the Rings. Like. <laughs> well, okay, I'll put, I'll put it this way. Can an evil tree bear good fruit? No. No, wait, no. No. And so if you look at that and say, well, you know, he might have these things wrong, but this is good. Yeah, yeah. That is the door for you to get sucked in to the rest of it. And that's the way that false teaching works is that it mixes a little bit of truth with a lot of error and you accept the little bit of truth. The next thing you know, you accept the error as well, because I can even go across the road to the Catholic church and some of the things that they teach may line up with Bible, probably an accident, but anyway, (laughs) sorry, Uh, but some of it may line up with the Bible, but do I overlook the big things that they have wrong? And say, well, they got some truth there. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, Pastor, I think one other thing is that you understand that. That, we, that there are fake miracles, mm-hmm. fake tongues, <clears throat> fake healing, mm-hmm. does not mean that they are not genuine healing. Yeah. Right. So you say, well, test every spirit. Right. Well, nice, we must be able to scrutinize. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what you're Yeah. Well, just because I say that the miracles and those things have ceased, I don't mean that God's not still working miracles today. I'm saying that he's not going to give me the power to come up and whack you in the forehead and make you walk. Okay? God is working now, as we were talking about before church, uh, he is working through prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Uh, he is working through uh, different means such as that. And he is bringing about healing. I've seen people with cancer healed from cancer. I've seen people with different illnesses and things healed of illnesses and such by prayer, by people seeking after God and looking to him to bring the healing, not because the man of God came strutting in and saying, I've got the power of God. I can do all these things and I want to come in and I'm going to lay hands on you and all the man of God. No, that's not the way that it's working today. Okay. Okay. Well, we better wrap it up there. Uh, Anyway, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we, we thank you so much for your word that you've given to guide us. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells us and fills us. And Lord, that uh, we know that through this uh, study that we've looked at here today, Lord, that uh, without you, we can do nothing, Lord, but you have equipped us with all that we need. You have given us sufficiently all that we need to live a life for you and to do the work that you've called us to do to go out into this world and be a light and to be a witness in this world and lord i pray ask you just to help us 
to uh, uh, get rid of this idea, this mindset that we're doing it ourselves, get rid of this hero mentality, and Lord, that we would turn to you and allow you to do through us only what you, that you, only you can do, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. Lord, we do love and praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.